everyone, and welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, podcast for SaaS marketers and product people. Today, our awesome guest is Chris Milley, the managing partner at Software Pricing Partners. And we're going to talk about software pricing design today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. Onboard, engage, and nurture your customers as well as marketing leads. To follow the best practices, download our free printable email planning worksheets at useless.com slash worksheets. Hi, Chris. How are you, Jane? Nice to see you. Uh, we're so excited to and honored to have you here because you're one of the most qualified people in the world to speak about software pricing, probably. So for those who are not familiar with your company, what do you do and why it's like historically important? Well, so it is exclusively B2B software oriented. So we don't price as we call them uh, the movie planes, trains, and automobiles. And so it's all intellectual property, which is a key word for us because it's not just the product, it's also your services. And the firm started in 1982. So prior to that, there was no such thing as software pricing. So it's the fourth decade. I'm not that old, so I wasn't here the entire time, but I did have a software company in the late 90s. I was working at Ernst & Young at the time. We started uh, an on-prem software uh, capability. And in 08, uh, during the market crash, we decided to replatform, move to the cloud, and we hired software pricing partners to help with our monetization strategy. And that's when I learned how many uh, mistakes I had truly made in the product design function, which was 100% devoid of anything pricing related. It was just all product design. And that was the big journey. And that's also the big journey with our clients is to understand how to design products around their packaging and pricing and the manner by which you want to charge for the use of the software. Who is your ideal customer, that company that can afford services like yours to optimize their pricing and uh, why it's a worthwhile investment, like why they should do that? Well, the ideal company is a mix. So we have a fair amount of publicly traded software companies. We have a good chunk of what I would consider just high growth, 20, 30, 40, $50 million companies who are trying to get onto their IPO track, if you will. And then we have a good mix of smaller companies that most are private equity backed and a handful of them are bootstrapped. And I think when you get into, so I bootstrapped, I had, we don't have video here, but in the late nineties and in the early 2000s, I had hair that was maybe three times as long as yours, Jane. And the reason for that is I could not afford a haircut. I was literally eating generic cereal for real. And it was very, very tight. And during that process and the bootstrapping, if you had asked me to invest money into a pricing strategy, I probably would have laughed because that would be silly, even though I now know that that would be probably one of the better investments. And you ideally want to invest in the science behind making money somewhere after you've gotten into product market fit and are probably approaching a lot of people call them beta, but I prefer to call them early access programs. A beta program means it's free and I have to give it to you, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, for free in exchange for you, the pleasure of you uh, gracing me with the usage of the software, which you rarely do because you didn't pay for it. And early access is the exact same thing as a beta, except we're testing 
price. We're saying, how hard is it to extract a $10,000 deal, a $100,000 deal, a million dollar deal? You know, how are we going to gear the business? And we want to exit early access with a good product market fit. And that's basically what we did. We had $2,500 software and lo and behold, it, the, the average sales price was more like 450, 500 grand when we got into the enterprise space. And that was kind of the journey. So I think if you're, if you've reached product market fit and you've got some science behind how you want to make money and you understand that how you go about making money for your intellectual property products and services needs to change and iterate very quickly in that stage is really key versus if you're high growth, maybe you iterate the model quarterly. And if you're publicly traded, maybe yearly, it just depends on how often you're putting out product and how often you're creating more value. So we see lots of SaaS websites. They have their pricing page in place. You see the first like couple tiers in the range of, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five hundred dollars. But what's hiding behind the enterprise plan, the enterprise sales and what problems companies are facing behind the scenes, like being approached by a large account, having to scale their pricing non-linearly and other things that just not in the mindset of a very early on founder? Well, most of the time, what hides behind the enterprise edition, and maybe even the first two editions that you've attached a price point to is likely chaos in the form of maybe your list price for that that package is, let's say, $10,000, but you don't get anywhere near that. And in fact, you've sold it 10 times, let's say, in the last month, and you've sold it everywhere from $50 all the way up to $9,000. And so that chaos, the inability to predict where the net price is being extracted and your inability to extract a consistent net price is actually the thing that's going to hurt you the most. Because, and, and, you know, I really did lose millions on that, Jane, in my journey, because we are all onboarded into the software world in a product market fit orientation. When I was onboarded, you just built it and they came. And then later product management became this wonderful discipline. We have MVPs and all these other frameworks we can use. And it's the same thing with monetization. If you, the, the earlier that you can get the revenue stream baked and a little bit more consistent and predictable is just the better. And often what happens is in the chaos as you grow, sort of like you said, tucked behind the enterprise edition, for me, what happened was I, I had a summit uh, for all of our largest customers. And there was a woman named Judy, and there was a, uh, a gentleman named Brad. And uh, Judy and Brad had bought the same thing from us. Now, we had an ERP system, so there was a bunch of different modules. So I said, you know, what are the odds that some are going to have the same exact configuration of the modules? Well, it, it turned out they did. We <laughs> supported, you know, six different design systems that we would ingest the bill of material of what was designed and then blow that through sales and purchasing and shipping and receiving. So what are the odds that they would have the same design system? And well, it turned out that they did. And then they could carry any number of, of like over 100 catalogs in interior and exterior products. So what are the odds that they would have the same catalogs? And lo and behold, they did. And then finally, you could interface with 40 different accounting systems. So what are the odds that they would both be running QuickBooks? You know, oh shit. And they did. And one paid 2x the price that the other only paid x. And they compared notes. 
we were at the place in Charlotte called the Fast, it was called uh, Fast Track Summit or whatever, and it was in uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway. And we all get to drive and experience the Richard Petty experience and everybody's having a blast and everybody's bonding. And I got out of my car and I took my helmet off and I saw Judy and Brad there talking and Judy looked up because she was the one that unfortunately paid 2X. And when I met her eyes, I knew that we would never have her as a customer again. And that really was a big wake up call for me. And so in, in the chaos behind the scenes is your brand and it's your philosophy of how you want to treat customers. And I would say that in general, most software companies put their customers at the center of the universe, as we often do. And then I would just gently challenge, well, if, you know, you and I, Jane, come in and buy the same product and you paid twice what I did, how pissed off would you be? And if we compared notes, how upset would you be? And then am I, am, are we really having the customer at the center of the universe if we're kind of taking advantage of them on price? And that doesn't mean that we're malicious about it. It's just that tucked under the chaos is exactly what happens. And over time, I see wonderful companies' brands get destroyed. And as they get destroyed, the symptoms that occur is the buyer says, you know what, I'm going to stick you through an RFP because I don't trust you. The buyer says, you know what, I'm just going to buy at the end of the quarter. And then, th then all of a sudden they say, you know what, I'm just going to buy at the end of the year because I know I'm going to get a ridiculous discount. And then these ecosystems emerge that are really dysfunctional. And all of a sudden we're trying to move product and we should be closing in two to four weeks and it takes three months to close a deal, right? And so these inefficiencies is what's really hiding underneath that enterprise offer. And there's a lot in there and there's a lot of reasons for that. And there's a lot of dysfunction and it all sources back from that simple concept of it wasn't designed. It wasn't designed up front. It was made up. So what can we do better? How has your own knowledge about pricing changed since you've run your own company towards what you know now? Well, anytime that you are launching a new product or service, and this might be the market where a lot of new offers are coming into fruition, you want to first have some system or process or function that gives you a perspective on your price. And so I would tell you that over the decades here at the firm, the biggest lesson learned of them all is customers really aren't interested in paying you anything more than slightly under your costs, provided, provided, provided that you will answer the support line and support their, their investment. And so they don't really care how much money you make and they really don't care about your cost structure or any of those things. And so if you put the customer at the center of the universe and what they say rules the roost, just know that you'll never get paid fairly for your value. So you're going to need some manner by which for you to understand the competitive set, not to copy competitors, but to understand the market, its ecosystem, the alternatives. Sometimes the biggest competitor, by the way, is I'll just go build it myself, right? It's not even another named entity. And so you're trying to get a perspective of what you've built and your value. And early on, that's really hard. And you just have to know that early on, when you develop that perspective, it's going to be wrong. And so it has to be validated. And then you have to iterate very quickly. And then for those companies, and by the way, this is why you don't copy a competitor's, even if they have similar features than yours, you just don't copy a competitor's pricing. You need to understand what is in the evaluation set of the buyer, but you don't ever want to, you know, go look and see what the competitor is pricing and go figure out, you know, how they're pricing and how they're packaging and copy that because it's not going to work. Every model that is built, every monetization design carries with it a blueprint of risk 
And so when you copy somebody else's blueprint, you copy their unknowable blueprint of risk, and that might be really bad for you. That might not even work for you. It might not even be sellable by your sales team, right? So you really want to develop it, develop this from the inside out, not from the outside in, from the inside out. You still want to get outside inputs to help validate, but this is you developing your perspective because you get what you demand in the marketplace. And the second piece is everybody wants to value-based sell. So let's define value-based selling. Value-based selling is getting paid uniformly, fairly, and consistently for your value. Value-based selling is not Jane is really under the gun right now and she has a little bit bigger budget than Chris did. So Jane is going to pay a lot more for the software this week that I just sold exactly the same thing. That's not value-based pricing. That's used car sales, right? That's completely different. And you can still do that. You just know that that's a friction-filled nightmare at scale. So value-based pricing, it means that you better be able to enumerate, list out your value, right? Like what, what value are you providing through your products and services? And you would be amazed, publicly traded companies, um, privately held, bootstrapped, across the board, cannot enumerate their value. They don't have it. So they can't equip their sales team with it. And I think when you're selling your software, often people demand that the salesperson has to be tougher on price, which I think is a real disservice to salespeople because often what is really wrong is the model. And it probably has to do something with packaging. And so, for example, if I give you an all-in inclusive business management solution and you show up and say, I love this, this is great, but the thing is I'm not going to use the API layer and I'm not going to use the enterprise reporting and I already have an accounting system, so I don't need your built-in accounting system. I'll close today. I'll write you a check, but I need 40% discount because I'm not going to use 40% of the software. So defending price, price point, is not being tough on price. It's having really good packaging that is harmonized with what the buyer wants to take down. And as soon as somebody shows up with a partial use argument, that's like the, the ninjas to your sales team. I mean, they're going to get decimated because a partial use argument creates empathy and a salesperson never, they want to build a good case of referrals, et cetera. And at least when I was selling, uh, I sold everything from tens of millions of dollars of software all the way down to $19.99 a month. And I've also raised a lot of capital and I understand those dynamics very clearly. And I can tell you that you build empathy and relationships. And if somebody showed up with me and said, they're not going to use half the software, they weren't being malicious. They just literally weren't going to use half the software and it wasn't right to charge them for the full road. So guess what we did? You know, we would discount to handle that scenario. So put another way, we would discount because the packaging was poor. Now, there's lots of reasons that people discount, and it's not always because the salesperson sucks. <laughs> it actually has more to do with the fact that the company didn't give a good monetization design to make the sales team or the partners successful. In fact, 99% of the time, that's the case. Now, I'm not saying salespeople aren't driven by price in some scenarios, and that is the weakness of many of us in sales that have to learn how to navigate through that. But Often there are many other things behind the scenes that really haunt you when you're trying to move product in the marketplace that have little to do with the negotiation process and much to do with how you put the, the design together, the monetization design. I have a value-based question, and that is going to be based on the example of our own company, Userlist, which is an email marketing platform. And like many other ESPs out there, we help our customers manage their customer relationships. but 
Among our customers are SaaS companies, which are B2B high value. Each unit is, each customer is worth thousands of dollars. They're B2C companies and the LTV is way lower. And they're freemium companies who just churn over like thousands, millions of users every month. And obviously they don't really have the same value perception for the same exact activity. Sure, in the ideal world, the freemium companies should have an understanding that this is their marketing expense, but that's not usually the case. They're like, oh, we're freemium or we haven't even started monetizing yet. We're not getting any revenue, like you're too expensive. And then a B2B company can have 100 users inside Uselist, have amazing results from their automation. And sure, some like analytics companies attached to revenue, they have a luxury of being attached to money. So they have a more direct relationship and understanding who they are serving. We don't, and many other companies don't. So what do you do with this kind of diversity in your customer base? Well, the the question is what groups of, so we call these customer classes. They're they're Mm -hmm. not uh, customer segments. They are not. They are conceptually, but they're not an SIC. They're not a firmographic. They are groups of customers who take down value similarly. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say uh, we have a client that serves heavy equipment rentals, and we have a client that serves uh, uh, that same software over the years attracted wedding planners. It's inventory management software. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the similar needs, you know, if I have a big old forklift that's taken in thousands of dollars of rent each month, well, it's going to be rented for many months at a time. And I, inventory management is like really important to me, right? Because that is a big revenue generator. Well, if I'm an event planner or a wedding planner, I have, a, I have an unbelievable, I have thousands of pieces of parts, chairs, candelabras, tables, et cetera. And I turn that stuff like really quickly. So I, I share a very similar uh, value extraction there and the need to track my inventory, know where it is at all times, and of course, rent it out just in shorter intervals and a higher velocity of those intervals or higher volume of those intervals. And so if we showed up to the party and said, well, you know, wedding planners are completely different than, you know, heavy equipment renters and forklifts. At least they have different names. In our case, it's the same exact SaaS person just working in slightly different models. Well, the, the question is, are they doing exactly the same thing in the software and extracting that value in exactly the same way? And I don't know unless we dug into the details, but often you can find some differentiation there for how they're using the product or how they're organizing their workflows around their product or something that might, might spawn the ability to have a different offer for that group of customers, a slightly different offer. Now, if you can't find that and they truly are the same person, B2B and B2C, then you might hunt back and say, well, what is the manner or the basis by which I'm charging for the software? And so if I, let's say, was charging for my software based on location. Just, I'm gonna charge you based on the number of physical locations that you have in your hospital, for example. Then by definition, I'm saying all locations are created equal. But they're not, right? Because we know in healthcare, some locations are open 24 by seven like an ER. Some locations are open Monday, Wednesday, Friday because they're a satellite office in a county outside of the major city and the list goes on and on and on. So. Right away, we know, hey, there's probably something different about the locations. Now, this isn't packaging. This is what we call licensing. This is how do you gear the model? And in 1982, 
we invented the framework, the concept of a licensing metric, a value metric. Like what is it that goes into the quantity field of the contract? So maybe on the number of, I don't know the basis chain for what you're charging and the number of emails or the number of users, you know, that may not be the right call. In fact, we know in many cases, if you're not in sales enablement, charging by users may not be the best option there. It might have to go into this word that everybody throws around called consumption, which I hate. And consumption is really not a bit flag. It's not like something we do. What we're really trying to figure out is what are the range of quantities? So, so let's rewind and say this idea that, that, that you might charge for the use of your software. You know, we've known about this for decades and obviously you've created software and services for a reason and your customers are going to use them. So when we started out early and, and everybody was, for example, tethered to an ethernet port, we knew that it was CAD engineering software and we could charge you 60 grand for that license. It was a single CPU. You couldn't even pick up the machine and move it for fear you'd bust your back. And you were tethered literally to the wall with an ethernet port. And so that model worked great, right? Then some smart aleck came out with the network, right? So now all of a sudden we can walk around the office and, and then somebody came out with a network license server. So now all of a sudden charging on a user basis and getting 50 grand a user was virtually broken overnight because all of a sudden companies could dish out a license on the network. And so if anybody is listening and remembers those days, it was called the concurrent user model. We would charge based on the number of people who would access the software at any one given time. So think of it as a pooling strategy. If you have 50 users, but there's only ever going to be 10 people using the software at once. You buy 10 concurrent user licenses. Not many people know that that was invented by software pricing partners. That monetization strategy was invented by software pricing partners. And it was over top of Flex LM and some of the technical capabilities of the licensing managers at the time, which basically disrupted that journey. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is what we are talking about is what is in the quantity field of the contract and what are the ranges of deals that we like to see? Now, prior to that, a lot of this was just all you can eat. You pay a fee and you use it all you want, right? Because that was the model in this example before the, the network licensing servers came out. Well, then as things evolved, right, the model and the ecosystem and the markets, they have to evolve also. And so when we think about not charging all you can eat, because that's just taking down all our value. Well, now we have to charge in some manner to take down value. And early on, Salesforce did a user model. A lot of people kind of copied that. So consumption and usage base is just a fancy way of saying, how, how what is the, if I'm going to count every time an API fires and the range of quantities are one to 100 million for my customer base, hey, don't be surprised when you try to put a bid package together and somebody can't estimate that number because they have no earthly idea how many API calls they need in the next year. Well, that's a very different model, very different sales motion. You're, you know, and that model, you're going to have to pilot and do all kinds of other stuff in the sales motion. That's a very different model than I'm going to charge you by users because, well, I have 500 employees. You're not going to sell to all of them. So I kind of know what that's going to look like. Now, on this model where I know what it's going to look like and maybe the ranges of quantities are 10 to 200, well, that has a certain economic reality to it in the form of your valuation and your revenues. The API model, right, or, or maybe something even lower level than API, like every time we fire off a PHP worker or something in the guts of the software, all of a sudden, you know, we would imagine we're going to be sitting in Mexico sipping 
margaritas because we're going to retire multi-billionaires, but like you can't sell it. So consumption and usage base charging for the value, this idea that I have two different groups of customers using the software very differently can often be solved by picking the right way to gear the model by picking a slightly different license metric that basically accumulates a different amount of list price for that kind of usage. So for example, if B2C was spawning emails by the gazillions and somebody else was spawning emails, you know, by the hundreds of thousands, well, now all of a sudden we have something that might right size the ship if we have appropriate volume incentives, or maybe there's something else in the software that you want to look at the use, which is a better surrogate of that, uh, a replacement of that. And often what you can count, we would recommend needs to be in your pur purview. You know, it's not really a great model for me to charge you as a percent of your revenue when your revenue, I'm not a billing system, doesn't flow through my software because I can't see it. I can't measure it. I can't monitor yep, it. I can't yep. bill for it, gear for it. It's a mess, right? I have to call you up and be like, Hey, what was revenue last month? <laughs> you know, it would be a really messy model. So licensing packaging and then the price points that we attach to that is the science behind addressing these problems that you're having and and my big lesson learned was there are real frameworks and they're different they're not marketing frameworks they're not buying personas they're not you don't show up to the table with marketing content driven frameworks for monetization related problems you need a different set of frameworks a different set of thought process a different way to bring those things together and solve it and there's enough to be dangerous to read on our blog where you can learn to to do it on your own if you're earlier on but at some point what you really want to do is do a nice comprehensive analysis of the options of how you're going to license and package and the appropriate modeling for what kind of revenue would be generated so that you get comfortable that the strategy has a bogey that you're shooting for. And then when you roll out that change, if you don't have that bogey that this is a 2 million upside this year, you're never going to know if it's working or not. And so you asked earlier on about price testing, you know, this isn't B2C. I don't, I do not believe that, that, and our data from, you know, Stanford, MIT, Harvard, it's all the same. You know, people don't know what they're willing to pay for software. So asking them in a survey is bogus. It's completely not reliable and it can lead you down the wrong direction because software is an experienced good. And unlike a car, it's not like you're going to buy a car and be like, oh my God, this can cook my dinner. This is amazing. You're going to buy a car. You know that you can transport yourself coast to coast. You know what the use case is. You're not going to fly in it, right? But like if you get into software, I show up to the party and I have a hundred widgets in the back and those are called my workflows. And I know that you can help me with a hundred of those workflows. So maybe I'm going to pilot out 50 of them, or maybe I pilot all hundred, but then I experience your software and I realize, oh my goodness, there's actually another hundred workflows in the back I can use this for. So my willingness to pay at that moment after implementation and long after I've been onboarded is very different, very different than it was at the initial sale, because now I have experienced all that you can do for me. And we call this operational entanglement. When you start to entangle your software into your customers, business systems and workflows and really penetrate into that account, you, you become sticky, you become necessary, required, you're into, let's say the field crews, et cetera, that monetization strategy can stimulate that, right? So that, that customer lifetime value just lasts forever is what everybody's dream is. But getting that right is very difficult and getting that sort of strategy built is kind of what it's all about. And my, my final comment is when you, when you look out in the ecosystem of the alternatives 
and you see how somebody else is pricing, what you don't understand is that that might be version 73 of their monetization model. And so here you are on the equivalent of version two or version 10, and you go out and copy a version 73, and there's that template of risk and that whole time dilation problem that you're, and so what happens a lot in our industry is people go to HubSpot and they go take uh, an, an Atlassian and all these other ones, and they take version you know 643 of the model and they play it back and say, well, they've been doing this forever. And so therefore it's, it, it works, right? Like I was, I think the 48th customer of HubSpot when they first started, when I had my software company and guess what? They charged me a flat fee of $35,000, right? And then when they bought Performable, I paid another 20 grand on top. And then they decided that, you know, they were going to charge based on the number of contacts in the database. And one year we caught wind of Home Depot and Lowe's and ballooned our database thousands and they wanted to triple our bill. And then we went to Marketo. So that, you know, that was a heartbreaker. I didn't want to leave and I didn't want to back out thousands of leads manually to lower my bill. And so that's kind of how those things play out. And so as a cautionary note, don't copy the, the competitor's, you know, program, figure it out on your own and get used to getting into the motion of, well, I'm going to make this change. And this is what I think the response is going to be. And it's going to generate this revenue. And at the end of month one, am I tracking on that? And am I not tracking on that? If I'm not tracking on that, I'm going to play my next card and I'm going to add a couple extra features into this offer to enrich its value because people are pushing back on price. And there's a real cadence and a real structure to that just like there's a real cadence and a real structure to product management and our sprints and how we put out product. And there's always a gap from the lab to the field that you then close by iterating. One of my favorite concerns in regards to testing pricing is that usually running a new pricing model requires a rework from the engineering side as we sell self-serve software. But I know you have a different approach to testing, <laughs> which involves sales. So tell us more about that. Well, so this could become a very nuanced conversation, but I'll, I'll say one cautionary note, which is a lot of this depends on, are we launching a brand new product or are we like very mature and have a lot of data to drive the next decision that we're trying to iterate on? So let's start at the first part, which is we have a relatively new product. And, and by the way, this if you're gearing any of this because you're trying to do sort of a self-service day one where people can just sign up for the software and away they go, that does imply that the monetization decisions that you make are the right ones and you may not know that on day one. So if you spend a lot of money doing that and you gear it wrong, you know, you could push yourself into a capital raising uh, need because you're not going to be generating the revenue that you need and the problem isn't in the product, which you're invariably going to think it is the problem is in its packaging its licensing or how you put the pricing together but if it is in the beginning of the journey i would highly 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 recommend that for a period of the pilot that you do not gear in the software so if you were not doing a beta but an early access program because early access is premium and uh, people will pay for premium and there's nothing better than a paid pilot uh, we can do a whole separate uh, session, Jane, on uh, the dangers and pitfalls of beta. I, I live those. I call it the process by which companies crap on your roadmap because you think the deal's right around the corner and they need seven more features. They're not. They're not paying, so you go divert resources, right, to go build those features. And it's just they just really, really take can take you for a ride if you're not careful. So a great litmus test is to charge. So I would 
uh, people often forget that we have this thing called contract and we have this wonderful thing called the English language and, and in the legal terms and conditions of our agreement, um, we can actually gear, we can say, you know, Jane, you have no rights for module number two, even though like if you spin up your environment and log in tomorrow, you can actually log in to module number two. Now I'm having geared for that, but I, and actually I would argue this is great, right? Because what's going to happen is you're going to log in and go, oh, well, I'm a user. I didn't really read the contract. And over time, I'm going to peek into module two and holy moly, this is amazing. I'm going to start using it. Now you're going to, your first reaction, Jane, is I'm upset that they're using module two. I can see them using module two and in their contract, it says that they can't use that darn it. Right. And I'm going to say, well, just hold off and let it get sticky and let them fall in love with module two. And when they fall in love with module two, and eventually three months later, you get the bandwidth to go gear and say, well, you know, we now have the license entitlement of preventing you from going in to module two. I'm going to send out a nice reminder and say, hey, just so you know, we noticed, we happened to see that you were in module two and you've been using it for a while. Looks like you're lit, getting great value. Here's what your upgrade path looks like. We'll give you 30 days. And if you don't want to upgrade, we're going to shut down your access to module two. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to scoop up paying customers on module two without diverting from the priorities of those first three months of the stuff that you were working on. And so often what I see publicly traded, privately held, you know, everybody's launching new products and services. Everybody tries to gear really quickly, but you never really want to pull the trigger and make a change worldwide. You want to do that in solid footsteps in the sand with a savvy rollout process. And that rollout process uh, go slow to move fast. And in the go slow stage, use your legal terms and conditions and then gear later once you've kind of litmus tested the strategy. And of course, this implies that you can see the usage, which is a wonderful thing to have in everybody's software anyhow. We have a keyword of uh, feature gating for this. Like are your features gated or, or not just yet? Um, that story with Brad and Judy really struck my heart. If you continuously, <laughs> I, I just imagined your I'll frustration. Never that. Yes. So if you experiment with your pricing numbers and especially with your pricing models and metrics, you will inevitably end up with a thousand different ways Judy and Brad could have different pricing on the similar setup. And, and what is that with the fairness and uh, value based and everything that you've advocated for in the first few sentences, why you should be? consistent in your pricing and value delivery? You should first always be going up, mm -hmm. not down, because that is a whole different problem. And I think that if you're going to experiment with pricing first, remember it's B2B, it's not B2C. So this is an A-B testing kind of realm. And often people bring B2C frameworks into B2B and they, they're not appropriate frameworks. So A-B testing is not an appropriate framework in B2B, you're, you're going to get snagged. Somebody's going to see A, somebody's going to see B and people compare notes. You know, if I go take a plane flight uh, with you and, and let's say we're both sitting in first class because it's, it's my example. So we're both sitting in first class. I'm not going to look at you and say, Hey, uh, what'd you pay for your plane flight? But if I'm sitting in first class next to you and we both used user list and we're like, Oh, this is so crazy. Yeah. What did you buy the enterprise? Yeah. I bought the enterprise edition. Did you buy a volume? Yeah. I bought a similar volume. Did you feel like it was a great deal? I mean, was it, did you, are you getting good value? Guess what's going to come out? Now I'm not implying this is how it actually happens, but of course this can happen online and others, but people just naturally compare. And in fact, buyers have competitive intelligence capabilities where they go to the ends of the earth to compare 
because they know that there's wide variations in net prices paid. So you want to think about a new skill, which is getting really good at packaging. And I fundamentally believe that as a, as a SaaS company or software company, in order to succeed, you, you really need to be con continuously monetizing. So we call that continuous monetization. It's the idea that it is a process entangled and on par with product management. And packaging is a real skill set that allows you to attach a different price. So if you're experimenting with, with something, I think it is much more preferred to spawn an additional offer that you are testing, not to just play around with the price of today's. And when I say an offer, by the way, I mean, maybe it's the enterprise edition, maybe it's the, the professional edition plus this services component or whatever it is that you're offering as a bundle of capabilities to your customer, that offer can have a price point attached to it. And I think the mistake that's often made is, I remember I was on a call, we did not win uh, this particular engagement because this uh, gentleman decided to do it on their own. And they said, look, I looked at the competitive set, our list price is too high, so I'm just going to cut it in half. And I said, oh, well, that, then what happens? He said, well, I'll just make it up in volume. And then I said, well, what if you don't? And it was just like chirping noises on the phone. Like, well, I, I hadn't really thought of that. I said, well, if you don't, like maybe, maybe you don't have a job, right? Like maybe you nuke like tens of millions of dollars. Like, and so this idea that we just manipulate the price in this case, again, by looking at the competitive set is really dangerous. And I think you have to be more sophisticated about it. And often it involves packaging. So if someone comes along and they have a low perception of value, and they have a certain expectation of a certain bill that is not aligned with your current pricing. Do you let them go as a non-perfect price, like customer fit, or should you use packaging to somehow negotiate available features and things like that and let them use your service, but for the price they want? Like, do you basically go down to some smaller numbers or do you stand by your value and say, no, sorry, goodbye? Well, if you're asking, would I have a list of, let's say a hundred features and a la carte work my way down until I meet your price point, I would, I don't think that's a good idea. I think it's better to gather the data of that audience who is not buying because, mm -hmm. so, so let's take an example of, uh, this happens a lot in APAC and for some reason, everybody in APAC gets tagged with this. Well, they negotiate like crazy. And some companies will take their price list and they'll copy it and they'll double the list prices and go to APAC and say that now you can discount. And of course they forget that some companies with head, a headquarters in APAC also have a division in the U S and of course now we have the comparing notes problem and that's a huge mess, especially in industries where consolidation is happening. So it would be more preferred to not, take out features one by one or bundle by bundle and negotiate down, let's just say to a price point, what you'll find in APEC is a lot of those uh, distribution channels are done through partner networks. And there's a lot of point solutions that tend to compete with like your all in one solution It's a bit like a nibbling approach where you're coming in with, a, let's say an all in one business management solution, but there's a standalone purchasing thing. That's really good. It's not the whole system, but it's really good. And it's a heck of a lot cheaper. And then there's a standalone shipping thing from another company of software that you can buy. And people have cobbled together these work processes. You're coming in with the all 
you can eat or all you uh, all in one business management platform, which is a better mousetrap, but they're not going to pay that price. So often when, when you penetrate into that market, it's not a pricing issue. It's a be, be craftier with your offer to compete and get a toehold so that you can draw them into the all, uh, the all, uh, in one business management platform, for example. So I think if somebody's saying no, and you're pattern matching that, and it's happening a lot, it warrants finding out, is there something that they maybe don't need? Can you skinny down the offer? Maybe they don't need the same support level. Maybe they're fine with just email. Maybe they're fine with whatever that is that looks different. And now you've got a pool of, let's say 25 or 50 of those. Now you can go test that offer at that lower price point. So just because you said no to them today, doesn't mean you can't come back with a different offer tomorrow. And it may not be in a day. It might be in a few weeks or a few months or whatever, but I think that that unbundling your offer on a feature basis is very dangerous because it also implies that you understand and have ascribed the contribution of value on both a list and net price basis to each one of those features. And I'm not sure you have that. And customers don't really think that way, by the way. They don't really think about, well, if I want automatic text alerts, you know, I, I need it for five to $7 per what, you know, they tend to think about the problem that they're trying to solve and their total investment and what that looks like over the next couple of years and whether or not they can solve that problem. And don't forget, even in a commodity market where things are almost perceived to be identical, which they never are, they're never identical services and support can rule the roost. I mean, we have some customers who absolutely dominate because let's take something simple like uh, let's do hospitals again. And I decide that you've, you know, bought a thousand hospitals. So I give you a good deal and say, well, let me just give you uh, one throat to choke and I'm going to uh, have one support team. And then you, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, you're going to support all those hospitals on your own. Well, now we have support issues out the wazoo, except we never see them and everybody's unhappy because each hospital is a little different and really could benefit a lot from your services. So your model, even though the software is identical, might just be, I do services and I don't aggregate up to a single throat to choke. I service each one of your locations independently because I know that's what you need and that's my differentiator. And I, there are many examples of this where simple shifts in how you deliver your service are put you in the, in the dominant spot. What are your recommendations for high volume progressive pricing? When somebody comes along and they have an impressive business side that you're not used to having, like how do you charge them based on the same linear scale or do you figure out a progressive pricing for each of those individually? The current construct to handle that is, is called tiered pricing, which we do not believe is effective. Tiered pricing started in the eighties. It was a book written by a gentleman up in Harvard. And at that time it was written for industrial chemical manufacturing, physical products that we can look, see, and touch. And they had very specific bills of material and cost drivers that were very predictable and, and the way in which costs scale in the cloud are, are much different. And so we believe and our technology supports that smoothing out discounts in a model where discounts are earned, they're not given and they're earned in the sense that the higher the commit that you give us, the more discount that you earn is the preferred way to do that, but not in a tier. There's many problems with tiers. Um, but in, in general, just 
and, and there's an article coming out on the blog that the, the listeners can go and, and read about Jane, but in general, you can't give a gazillion tiers to a salesperson, their head will explode. And so you ultimately end up with like tier five or tier six, which is like this catch-all tier, which is like everything above uh, 25 million APIs. And then this customer shows up and your price, let's just say, keep our math easy, is a dollar per API. And all of a sudden Microsoft shows up and says, this is great. You know, I don't have 10 million APIs. I have 2 trillion. And, and you're like, well, it's a dollar an API. And they're like, I don't think so because we're not doing it at a dollar. Like, and so what's happened is the model doesn't scale because it's just stopped at this catch-all tier. The other problem is people buy at the beginning of, or at the end of the previous tier, tiers fundamentally change buying behavior. So let's take an example where you might deploy my software for up to a uh, hundred users, but my tier break hits at, let's say, 51 users, right? You get your next discount. So for me as a buyer, if I'm mitigating risk, do I come in all with 100 or just 51? Probably 51. I mean, what's the incentive for me to do 52, 53? It's all the same per unit price. So I'll just mitigate my financial risk. I'll come in at 51 users. Thank you. And we'll do the pilot. And guess what? I don't get to value because I didn't do all 100, right? And then you don't get me, if I'm not happy, I'm not expanding. So this is the classic land and expand, but the expand never happens because we've landed <laughs> at the wrong configuration, right? We didn't land in enough users. So tiered pricing, we can go on and on about the problems, but in general, because you now have a game-changing client that's coming in, what is happening is they really represent and will demand that you treat them in some way to honor this they're representing many customers in one. So right away, you know, you're saving customer acquisition, sales and marketing dollars. So, so that can be in part returned back to them and think of that as the subsidy that allows you to say, okay, Microsoft, you do have a trillion. So it's not a dollar. It's actually going to be 50 cents or a penny or a fraction of a penny or whatever per API. Now that has to be some savvy modeling because as you know, there are cloud costs compute and storage and other things that might be in the nature of your algorithm or technology that maybe when Microsoft shows up and everybody gets excited and says, it's a penny per API. And then the CFO comes in two weeks later and goes, oh crap, it costs us a penny and a half to process it. Now you're upside down, right? So, so I think that uh, linear, nothing is ever linear. I, I've had this conversation so many times, it's always comical. Everybody always says from uh, healthcare to to AI, to facial detection algorithms, to aerial imagery. You know, every time you use my software, you extract a dollar's worth of value or whatever that is. And it's, and it scales linearly. So if you need a, a hundred billion units then the price is a hundred billion and that never plays out because of one simple, very important concept. And that is that uh, there's nothing more valuable than the first tranche of units that you deploy to your customer. And the reason for that is because like let's use the ERP example. If I deploy the first tranche of users, I'm likely doing the sales team, the purchasing department, and the executive team. Now later, I'd really like to get into the scheduling department because they have another 200 people in the field there. But when I get to the schedule, this is a real example, by the way, when I get to the scheduling department and I knew this would happen, right? The gong would ring. We have an expansion sale. Everybody run down the hall and I'd wait for it because our list price was $200 back then. And then sure enough, somebody would say, well, so the thing is, Jane, there's 200 users in the scheduling department, but 
they're only using the scheduling module. They're not using the sales, the purchasing, the shipping, the receiving, and the analytics module. And now we're in a trap, right? So what happens is the deeper that you entangle your software, what's really happening under the hood is you're switching groups of users that are deriving ever decreasing value from your software. And we know that this phenomenon, this organic phenomenon in nature all around us is value is a curve. It's better represented as a curve. It's not a straight, it's never a straight line. You cannot take quantity times list and show up to a customer and say, it's 17 million a month, Jane. And all of a sudden somebody's going to go, uh, oh, hold on a second. And so by the way, in that example, and you show up for 17 million and that salesperson has been around for a while, what's the first thing the salesperson is going to do? They're going to say, well, I'm not going to get left out of the office. I'm going to lower this down to 4 million. Then they're going to enter the sales process and then they're going to negotiate. And maybe they're lucky and they close a deal at 750 grand. What's the discount of 750 grand over 17 million? It's very different, right? Because that almost tells the story that the salesperson is a goofball who's just discounting like crazy, but actually they didn't design the strategy because it's linear and it accumulated too much list price. And what that caused is a recasting of everybody's discounts to be overstated. So now we tell ourselves a story that our sales forces are failing and they can't sell software, but really it's very simple. Nobody designed the model. And so every salesperson is solving the problem. In this case, my list prices are way too wacky for these really big game-changing clients and they're solving it differently. And then when we step back in our platform and we ingest that transaction data and we ingested trillions of dollars of B2B transaction data, you can clearly see what's going on. I mean, it's just massively discounted software, 80, 90, 95 plus percent range. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but those are the models that give you the biggest upside potential when you get the design right. Are there any companies out there who are doing something exceptionally awesome or unconventional with their pricing model, packaging, anything like that? You know, if you look 10 years ago, software companies weren't really having full-fledged pricing teams. And we've proposed for many years that what is needed is a chief monetization officer, an actual world-class monetization function under the hood of the software company that is in every part on par with the disciplines that we bring into product management and how we deploy uh, products and services into the marketplace. So I think that the one of the things we're most excited about is, you know, gathering the events that lead up to the sale and understanding the behavior patterns of what's happening is really part and parcel to understanding how to perfect your packaging and pricing. And this idea that we talked about earlier around continuous monetization, our customers do that. And they just absolutely are some of the most profitable engines I've ever seen in my life. And I wish I had done them at, at my software company, but I think right now, most everything is event-based. It's like, you know, a new management team comes in and we need to do things differently. And then we go do this big study and we leave no stone unturned. And then we come up with a hundred page PowerPoint slide deck and then we roll out some of it, but some of it doesn't work and some of it sort of works. And then everybody goes off and, you know, go forth and multiply. We all start selling stuff, service and stuff and off we go. And nobody ever really like goes back and looks and says, well, is it, is it truly working? Is it not working? So I think the most successful companies, which by the way, right now are navigating through the current uncertainties in this market in spades. I mean, they're doing very, very well. They're, they're very, very profitable. Um, 
are looking at this routinely. I mean, it is part of the manner by which they gear their software companies. It's part of the executive team's dialogue. In some cases, they have a whole team function dedicated to this and technology that supports it and processes underneath that they've learned to guide that. So I think if you just imagine for a moment that that we started a software company, Jane, uh, it's not user list, it's another company that's going to be uh, a unicorn. <clears throat> and then we spent, we created just something very brilliant. Like it's really solves a thorny problem and it's going to go like gangbusters. And we're in a board meeting and we're presenting and a board member says, wow, this is great. And we show them the product and we show them the potential and the, all that stuff. And then a board member was to just kind of scratch their head and look at you and say, so Jane, I see that you need, you know, like three, four, five million to continue the journey on the product. That sounds great. How much money are you going to spend on your monetization strategy? Like how much money did you spend on the science behind how you're going to make money? First, no board member is going to ask you that. That's the first problem. Second is your answer to that is clearly going to be, you know, like, well, what do you, I mean, your answer will be different maybe after this podcast, but most people's answers will be like, what, what are you talking about? Right. And so my big lesson learned which was a mistake, a huge mistake that cost me a lot of equity, was that not treating this, as, was, was looking at this as an attribute that I attached to the product right before I go live. And that's the price, right? But monetization, you know, the price that you decide to ultimately charge is really a supporting function to the whole model. It's a very important, don't get me wrong, but the stuff we talked about today, packaging, licensing, and some of the other frameworks you'd bring to bear are so much more powerful and dynamic and capable of wielding enormous profit for the entity because most software companies are not paid fairly for their value. I mean, I don't think it, I know I had this feeling and I know I talked to the executive teams all over the place today and, and, and all of them are pretty universal in saying, Hey, when we go through this price change and then all these legacy customers are left, you know, in the background, like I've got a whole bunch of those folks that paid me peanuts and they're killing the software, cranking up, you know, unbelievable amounts of value for their businesses and they're paying me pennies on the dollar. So as a founder group of all of us, uh, that what we've created, we tend to highly undervalue what we've created. And I think monetization is about bringing that back in par so that that if you asked me who's at the center of the universe of the diagram and monetization, you know, if it was, if I was in your boardroom, Jane, I would put user list at the center and the customer at the center. I wouldn't put the customer at the center because we know they don't want to pay you fairly. I would put them both because it is really a balance. It's, it's the, it's the walking of the tightrope on the fence that I am getting paid fairly enough and well enough to the point where if I push any further, salespeople will start losing deals. Sales cycles will start extending because people can't emotionally deal with the price point. And most software companies are nowhere near that. For us, it helps to have this diversity in different customers that we understand that our pricing is never perfect. So we keep looking for optimal solutions. And second, it helps to be non-technical founders so that I don't see the clue um, in business growth in the next upcoming feature. It's not that we need to sell what we have better because it's already valuable to a bunch of customers. So we need to do that more better in a more optimal package. So I guess technical founders usually fall into the trap of just let's build a few more features and 
it will be all right. Yeah, you know, it's, it was interesting because, you know, I'm I'm probably in, you know, when I talk about on-prem tech, a lot of our clients, by the way, are, you know, they've been around for 30, 40 years, big companies, they, they've got massive software, but it's on-prem and they're just maybe now moving to the cloud and um, re-gearing and reimagining. But this is like, a, you know, millions and millions and millions of lines of code that have to make their way over. It's going to take a long time. And uh, many people will be surprised to learn that COBOL uh, is actually still in production in some cases. So the, the, the manner by which we um, bring over that sort of capability on an on-prem basis, if we rewound, and I think a lot of today's web-first companies don't have this background, you know, we would charge you upfront for the software. So this was the late nineties, right? I charge you 125 grand upfront, let's say for the software, for a classic everyday blocking and tackling deal. We charge you 20% annual maintenance. We'd get you installed with good implementation services that were pretty expensive. And then this thing happened at the end of the year. So the 20% annual maintenance was to keep that version current, right? Like a bug fix, a break fix, a, maybe something that is a new report, just a modest add to value, whatever. But then this like version seven would come out for the next year and we would charge you for that, right? We would say you have to upgrade from version six to version seven. And by the way, version six is good for the next year. Then it's going to sunset because, and this was the problem of on-prem of multiple code bases and all of the stuff that is, is easier supposedly in the cloud because we have a single code base, et cetera. But back then it was a real bear. But the reason I bring this up is when we moved to the cloud on a, a subscription basis, we somehow forgot about that. You know, there's this expectation that now because I'm charging you a monthly fee that you just get everything I create carte blanche. Like I just blow all that into the quote unquote subscription stream. Well, guess what? There's maintenance value add and I guarantee you, you're working on something on the roadmap that is worth a lot of money to your clients and a lot of value to your clients that they would pay a premium for but a lot of companies just blow that straight into the subscription stream and away you go. Now, when you couple that with the idea that I don't have a function to raise my prices and to keep that current, then what we're doing is ever worse, right? We're giving away more and more and more value for yesterday's price. So, so we're barely keeping up, right? So, so that dynamic nature of getting people to upgrade and upsell and expand or cross sale is just kind of virtually missing. And so, I would encourage all the product management listeners that, you know, look closely at the commitment that there is an implied commitment that you've made to customers to keep the version of the software that you sold them current and vibrant, et cetera. But, but there really needs to be like a, a something we slide into the water there. That's a bit of a, it doesn't have to be like a hundred percent dam, but it doesn't let all the water through. And that thing that we're sliding in is to say, well, but there's this other stuff we're creating on the roadmap. And if we really thought carefully about its monetization design, we're probably not going to just go ahead and give all that stuff away. Maybe it would be better cast as a different module, or maybe it'd be better cast as an optional add-on, or maybe a, a special integration. I mean, there's a million different variations of that. Or maybe it warrants a price increase that we're going to deliver, right? And so that, that process, that, that sort of uh, conceptual thing that we're sliding into that river of value is missing in most organizations. And that puts them in the trap of giving away ever more increasing amounts of value over time. And that's why in five years we go back and we look and say, Jane's a customer of ours. I loved her. I thought she was great. 
a great relationship for a while, but now she's only paying us 15 grand a year. Look what she's doing in this software. I mean, I hate Jane. This is, this is BS. And we get really passionate and angry and we tell ourselves these stories that these customers are taking advantage of us. But again, I would go back and propose that that's a system design issue. That's a monetization design issue. That is not the customer's fault. That's maybe your fault because you're giving away too much value. Maybe your fault because we're not keeping things current. Maybe your fault because you didn't put that little dam in the river of value. You know, there's there's something missing there inside the business model. And that's the big message is the, the business, the software business model, uh, specifically monetization's design is to optimize that revenue model. The thing that is missing in most software business model models is that monetization function. It needs an owner. Maybe one day it needs a staff or maybe starters, it's the CEO or an executive team, but somebody needs to own it and it needs to be a formal process. We usually close with the one do and one don't. Have you already spelled out yours above or do you <laughs> feel you want to add something else here? There's a lot of do's and don'ts. I, I would say, <laughs> uh, you know, the number one piece obviously is the, the commentary around don't, don't copy your competitors. And that includes being part of what I consider an industry-wide problem of competitive intelligence gathering. And if you want to look at this gone wrong, look at uh, the Aptian lawsuit and Pegasystems, which is a largest state award of $2.2 billion. Now, there's a lot of other stuff that happened in there. But at its source, if you misrepresent yourself and you mystery shop your competitor, you call up your competitor, pretend like you're a buyer and get their price list, you are going to get sued eventually. And that falls under the violation of the U.S. Espionage Act. It also falls under unfair and deceptive trade practices in the U.S. And that's triple damages plus legal fees. So that creates an incentive that if you're curious about your competitor and you're not doing that in an ethical way, that creates an incentive to sue you and slow you down, especially if you're a disruptor. And I've seen that happen on several fronts and it's very unfortunate. And remember that if you, you know, mystery shopping in retail would be like you and I having a, a Dillard's and we mystery shop our own competitor, our own, own employees to see if their service level is right. Mystery shopping where you call up a competitor and misrepresent to get something that they consider confidential. It doesn't matter if you did it or you hired a firm to do it. The person that procured it is responsible, right? So that's the don't. Don't do, you know, if you want to gather competitive intelligence, it's harder to do it this way, but it's better. You go out to your competitor's customers and you do that research because that's called customer research. Why did you buy the competing solution? What did you like? What did you not like? And you... All right. At least that's blah, blah, relief. Blah. <laughs> that's a relief because some, you know, rumors get around anyway, so you can't be always uh, liable for them. <laughs> yeah, you just... And, and also... If you are, or if you have misrepresented, just think carefully about, you know, the, the dynamics of the culture that that creates at your own company. So that, that's my big, don't do that. It just seen a lot of damage happen that way. Um, and then the, the, the do, I think just falls under, um, in times of uncertainty, there are many things that you can do in the world of pricing that are very short term that can significantly move the needle and maybe prevent letting a resource go or prevent having to go back, you know, to a capital raise, you know, everybody knows. And I, and I had a couple of these during the 08 market crash, you know, when, 
when you don't need it, they're lined up out the door. But when you need it, you know, buckle up. It's going to hurt if you uh, if you take in the capital when you need it. And it's probably going to hurt really hard on the equity side of the house. And so you can stave off equity raises and needs for line of credits and uh, and other things during times of uncertainty with just good old fashioned pricing hygiene, right? Like just double checking to make sure that things are optimized and tuned. And there's a, there's a lot of short-term things that you can do to make things better. If you treat it, if you know that it is an item in the arsenal to navigate through times like these, then I think that's very helpful. If you did what I did, which is I didn't even know it was in the arsenal. Well, then you're, then you're in talking to investors and maybe a bank relationship. I mean, you spend a lot of time on that. If you're a CEO, just trying to figure out how you might want a bridge, for example, but often how you can do that is just get better on packaging, pricing, and licensing. Amazing advice. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. Where can people find you and your company and yourself personally online? Softwarepricing.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Chris. Have a, a wonderful pleasure. 2023 and hope uh, it's good for you and your uh, customers. Thank you. To you as well. Thanks for listening. You can find a written recap for this episode at userless.com slash podcast. Please help us grow by leaving a review on iTunes.